Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right. Want to go ahead and move back to your seats? Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you. Feels nice to be in an actual church building. I can tell you to turn to your pew Bibles, and you can do that, which is great. And I get a, a lectern, so there's kind of extra. This is the pose. There's kind of this like extra sense of like the weight of the word, you know. So um, glad you could all make it for our very special gathering today. Today we are celebrating uh, Epiphany. Today. Uh, is our closest Sunday to the Sunday that we would call Epiphany, which is um, a Greek word that means uh, manifestation or arrival. Um, And if you remember the word Advent in Latin means manifestation or arrival. We're not terribly creative uh, in the Christian household when it comes to naming things. We just choose Greek words or Latin words and um, jab them into the English. Um, But uh, this is kind of us wrapping up the the Advent Christmas narrative. And so we've been looking at all of these different, uh, we've been looking at the Christ child, which if we get a chance after the gathering to come up and look at the Christ child, it's very lifelike and a little bit creepy. Um, It's not ours. Um, we've We've been looking at the story of the Christ child from these different perspectives of the people who were gathered around. You know, that that Jesus is kind of the, the, the nucleus of this whole story. That's the one that's drawing it all together. And it's, it's so interesting because in a way, Jesus doesn't say anything. Jesus doesn't really do anything apparent in that early part of the story. Yet those first few pages of the gospels are so rife with activity. There's like an electricity in the air um, that's happening around the birth of this child uh, kind of on the outskirts of the city. And we talked through some of those different people. So we began Advent by talking about the prophets, um, that the prophets teach us that hope begins in darkness. Um, and we don't always think about starting Christmas stories like that, but it's imperative that we learn how to begin stories in darkness because all good stories begin in darkness uh, because it can only get brighter from there. And that prophets exist to kind of, we, we said almost, uh, it's almost insulting in a way. It's very audacious of the prophets to, to give us permission to articulate our grief and our struggle, um, to, be, to realize that things are not the way that they could be or should be, but then to give us this vision, these poetic visions of what it looks like when God is king and when God begins to recombine heaven and earth. But we have to learn that process of waiting and this real kind of dirt under your fingernails type of hope. We looked at the angels and how the angels exist on the highway between heaven and earth, and the angels teach us to prepare. That time and again, when the angels show up in the Christmas narrative and even earlier in scripture, they always begin by saying, do not be afraid, because what they're doing is they're shaking us out of our assumptions that the world works in ways that we understand. And it's this kind of call for us to say, hey, wake up, pay attention. Something incredible is about to happen. But if you don't have the eyes to see, you'll just miss it, and it moves right past you without you aware that Jesus is doing something amazing in our midst. Shab talked to us about Mary and Joseph, this idea of this 
expect, expectant waiting for God to bring about his promises. And again, they don't always seem the way that we think that they should. The story isn't always written the way that we would have written it. But like Mary, like Joseph, for us to be patient, to receive the promises of God as ridiculous as they may seem, as countercultural as they may seem, but to hold on to that and to find that our real joy is not necessarily circumstantial, that our joy is not dictated by what we have or what we don't have or what's going on in the moment, but our joy is being rooted in this expectant waiting uh, for God to deliver us. Uh, and then the last time we gathered, we looked at the shepherds, uh, the social outcasts, the ones that weren't good enough to enter into the temple, and the shepherds uh, teach us um, that all of God's precious people are, are welcomed into the kingdom, that the kingdom of Jesus is a non-coercive kingdom, unlike the empires of this world, who use power and control to try to dominate us, to, 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 to cause us to submit to their form of power. But in the Christ child, we see a radically different form of power where all are welcome in. And we talked about this strange paradox that we have in the kingdom, that it's radically inclusive in the sense that all are welcome, all of these markers that we normally have as human beings for who's in and who's out, who's worthy and who's not, all of that is done away with in the Christ child. But it's also radically exclusive in the sense that we have to trust him as our one true king. So today we're going to be wrapping up the story by looking uh, at the, the final passage uh, from the Christmas narrative, which is going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and it's about uh, the Magi. So I'm going to pray and we'll get right into it. So Heavenly Father, we do testify that you're here. Um, and Lord, I find it so sweet that it doesn't matter where we gather, uh, you are with us, that you go before us. Um, and you create spaces for us to encounter you, to encounter one another, and to be changed, to believe that we become more like you the more that we gather. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this space and upon the people of Audubon Park Covenant Church who are so sweet to offer us uh, a place to stay, um, not unlike Mary and Joseph finding uh, their own place to birth the Christ child. So I pray, Lord, that you would go ahead of us once more today, that you would make straight paths for us to meet you and to see you face to face and to be transformed. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I think this is what I find so uh, powerful about the story today, that Epiphany reminds us that everyone is looking for God. But the question becomes, why do we seek him? Everybody, I believe, is looking for God, whether they recognize it or not. We're all looking for some sort of a higher ideal. We're looking for something that we can aspire to that's just beyond our own reach, um, that, that calls us higher, that calls us to this place of transformation. I've, I've talked about before how sometimes I'm wary of the language that we use around love because I think love is this strange paradox of complete and utter acceptance of who you are today. But for you to truly be loved means that you are also going to change. This is what love does to us. Love changes us. We cannot help but be transformed by love. And that's what we find, um, what we're looking for when we're looking for God is that we're looking for love. That's this one part, acceptance of who we are today. But it's, in another part, is something that's beyond us, above us, higher than us, that can call us to another place, that invites or insists that there's some sort of trans 
transformation that occurs. So when we use this word epiphany, we're talking about this manifestation of God uh, to people, but we're specifically talking about how this story begins to open up to the Gentiles, which I believe is most uh, everybody in this room. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, You can read along there. You can take out your pew Bibles. And you can turn, we can have a little, what do, what do you evangelicals call that thing where you've seen it, who can find the sword drill? Yep, well, we never did that. Um, but we, we can do a sword drill later. But um, you can turn in your pew Bibles uh, to page something, something. Or you can close your eyes and you can just listen along to the story. Matthew chapter two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So, there's a lot of new characters are showing up in the story. Again, if we're kind of gazing at the Christ child from all of the supporting characters, we're trying to get into their mindset. What is it that they're looking for? What do they see when they gaze upon the face of Jesus? And so I want to talk about uh, a few of the key players that we find in this story. I think he won't mind if I put that there. Um, First off, we have King Herod, okay? So Herod is the king at this time, and Herod is something of a puppet king for the Roman Empire. So in his earlier years, he was uh, kind of a soldier for hire. He fought for the Roman military. He was kind of a, a mastermind, like he was very successful. And as a reward, Caesar gives him this, he gives him the throne of Judea. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that you know, it's of the line of David and David's descendants that are the ones that are the true kings of Israel. So Herod was seen as something of a sham or a fraud. Um, and so you can imagine, uh, at, at the time, he was tremendously unpopular. Many people would have seen him and said, this is not the real king, um, especially because he's a puppet of Caesar. He doesn't have a rightful uh, call to the throne. Um, But one of the things that we see in this story especially is that Herod is incredibly threatened by the announcement that the true Messiah, the true king, has been born. So he would have known some of the scriptures. He would have known the prophecies um, that there would be this time when God would send his Messiah, his anointed one, the true king. And so he feels a threat to his power because there's an alternative king 
and therefore an alternative kingdom that's kind of coming up in his midst. And if you know the, the story later on, Herod has um, all baby boys under a certain age uh, murdered, kind of echoing the story of Moses in order to ensure that he maintains his own sense of power. Um, I love, that there's another little line in here that sometimes we, we kind of skip right by. Um, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. What does it mean by, and all Jerusalem? I think that means the status quo. This is the, the people that are part of this society where the way things are works for them. Herod being on the throne, it works out for them. They like things the way that they are. They don't want to see another king on the throne. They, don't, they certainly perhaps are threatened by these promises that the prophets had given them that what God was going to send this king who was going to kind of turn the entire world upside down and that those who have privilege, it would be taken from them and those who are destitute uh, to them, it would be given. And so they are disturbed because they're saying in this moment, we like things the way that they are. In fact, one of the things that we do know from history was that Herod was the first king to kind of establish this elite class in Judea that hadn't existed prior to them, but he gave enough money and privilege to another kind of tier of society that it raised a whole bunch of people up into that um, kind of elite 1%. And so they probably uh, already anticipated that their lifestyles would perhaps be changed when God's one true king uh, comes to Israel, and they were not happy about this at all. We find Herod turns to the chief priests, and to the teachers of the law to ask them, where is this supposed to take place? And they're the ones that respond, Bethlehem. And I find this particularly fascinating. These are the guys who have the answer, okay? They know. They are, you know, they are, they're experts in the Bible. Their sword drills are top-notch. Like, they know exactly where the Messiah is to be born, and yet they don't make any effort to actually go and find him. We find no evidence that these uh, these chief priests or the teachers of the law go to Bethlehem to find Jesus. So they knew their scriptures. They knew a lot about God, but they didn't bother actually seeking him out. They were kind of content with this intellectual knowledge that they had, but they had no real desire to know God on an intimate level. And then we find uh, the kind of centerpiece of this story, uh, the Magi. And there's a lot of legends around the Magi, and a lot of them I actually quite like because I think it, it builds out um, the, the type or the symbol that they are to be for us. So the Magi were Eastern astrologers. The word Magi is where we get the word magic. Um, so these were astrologers. They were magicians. They are from the East. And if, anybody, if you know this pattern in Scripture, you see whenever it mentions East, it's always kind of talking about kind of like Babylon or modern-day Iran. And one of the, my favorite legends about these guys um, is that they are the descendants of the very same priests uh, that Daniel uh, and his lot uh, encountered in the exile. Okay, so if you remember the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know your veggie tales, you remember the whole story and the blah, blah, blah. You know? So they are in integrated into the Babylonian king's uh, court. Uh, Daniel especially, because he's incredibly wise, he's really great with dreams, and he's always going toe-to-toe um, with these astrologers, these magicians in uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's court. And so one of the legends holds that Daniel um, and his friends actually gave them the Hebrew scriptures and taught them how to interpret it. So these guys would have been the descendants 400 years later 
who still had the Hebrew scriptures, and they looked at them, and they knew, oh, this is the time when that Messiah from the Jewish people is to be born, and we're to see a new king come. And I think that that's fascinating to me. Again, what we see time and again in this story, it's not the people that you think are going to be the ones that notice and celebrate the coming of God as king. It's not the people who have the power. It's not the people that benefit from the system as it already works. It's not even the people who have all the right degrees and know everything about the Bible. It's the oddballs. It's the outcasts. It's the ones that shouldn't be there but are. They're the ones that are best primed to notice that something amazing has happened in their midst. And I think that this is what the Magi teach us, that the Magi come to the infant God not to get anything from him, but to worship him for who he is and what he will do for the sake of the whole world. They bring him these three symbolic gifts. Number one, they bring him gold, uh, gold being a symbol of his kingship on earth. So they recognize he is the one true king who was prophesied. They bring him frankincense, which priests would have burned in the temple. Um, that, that incense is kind of a symbol of the, pre- the presence of God. As the smoke rises up, it's the presence of God. It's like saying, this is where God is. So some interpreters would say the frankincense means they recognized him as kind of the high priest or the priest to end all priests. Um, some would say that it was actually a recognition of his deity, that they, they saw in this infant God. They said, what does God look like? That's what God looks like. That's what God looks like. It's, again, really, really creepy. I'll talk to Sarah about that. Um, but they would have looked upon this infant child, and they said, yeah, that's exactly what God truly looks like. And the third and final gift they bring is myrrh. And myrrh was considered an embalming oil. So it was a kind of prophetic pronouncement of his death. And legend has it that when they bring the body of Christ down off of the cross, they prepare his body. It mentions these spices and oils. It's because Mary had saved this myrrh from when he was born, the gift that was given to him from the Magi in order to prepare him for his death. And so these Magi, they they offer these gifts that ascribe to Jesus who they knew him to be, that he is the one true king, that he is God incarnate, and that he in some mysterious way will die in order to overcome death and to save the whole world. I think this is a really powerful way for us to start off the new year, to to slow down for a moment, to gather together and to say, "Why, why do I seek him? Why am I here? What is it that I am looking for when I come to Jesus? Because I think if we only come to Jesus to get things from him, we're going to leave very disappointed. And I know a lot of you grew up with a version of the gospel that was very centered on you and all of the promises. And if you just paid $19.95 and four easy installments, you were going to get all of these benefits from the gospel, right? That's what we're often told because of our consumerist society, that Jesus is like this giant ATM in the sky. And if you come to him, like your teeth will shine brighter and you're going to find the perfect spouse and you're going to have 2.3 kids and you're going to have a house you know, in a cul-de-sac with, a, you know, all, like the whole American dream kind of gets bottled up in the gospel. And I think what has tragically happened in our era, what we might call, I'm reading this book right now by Bradley Jersak called The Great, about the de- great deconstruction, he's calling it. Why so many people in our generation have walked away is because they were set up for failure by the very gospel that they were being given. 
because they are being told, if you are a good little boy and a good little girl and you behave yourself and you do all these things, then Jesus is going to give you all of this stuff. Jesus is going to fulfill all of these very particular promises, and you just have to keep coming to him and doing the rain dance in order to get him to give you what it is that you expect. But if that's all we see Jesus as, as just a function to us, that the gospel is about me and him dying for my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die and I can live a life more abundant, we end up disappointed and we end up walking away. But most tragically, we miss the true beauty of who Jesus really is. And I think this is what the Magi challenge all of us to today. Are you coming to him simply to get something from him? Are you coming to him to recognize who he truly is, to worship and to adore him? This doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't give us amazing gifts. It just means that something has to happen inside of us. There needs to be the shift within us for us to be able to receive appropriately the benefits of him as our Lord and our Savior. So what I want to do is I want to lead us on a brief meditation on Psalm 37. So this is going to be up on the screen. And you can read along if you like, or if uh, you want to kind of close your eyes and just allow the words to work, uh, wash over you. And we've talked about this many times before when we, when we practice meditation of Scripture. We're not here to, to analyze it. We're not here to be like the chief priests and the teachers of the law trying to figure out what do these words mean in, in this order. But we're allowing them to open us up to the present reality of God with us, that God is here in this room right now. His spirit is here, present, waiting expectantly uh, to speak to us. And so I'm going to read Psalm 37, verses 1 through 9, meditatively. And I just want you to see, what is it that God highlights to you? Is there a word or a phrase? Are you given a symbol? Do you have a memory? Whatever your particular language is with God, to see what it is that God might want to say to you at the beginning uh, of this year. So I'm going to pray and we'll read uh, Psalm 37. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Father God. Ask that you would open our ears to hear your voice, that you'd open our eyes to see you, you would open our hearts to receive your truth. Come, Holy Spirit. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. For me, I especially find verse four to be transformative because I think out of my consumerist mind that I've been so warped by this culture that we live in, when I hear, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of my heart, what I think is perhaps what many of you think or perhaps what you grew up with, which is if you do the rain dance, then God is obligated to give you what you want, right? This is how many of us grew up. It's like if you are a good little Christian boy, and you're a good little Christian girl, and you do everything that you're supposed to do, then it's all going to work out for you. And those things that you want, you're going to get. It's this kind of this meritocracy. There was this uh, book when I was um, learning educational theory in college. It's called Beyond Discipline. And this guy had this theory that our, our entire educational system is completely wired to reward and punishment. You know, we get uh, little gold stars and black demerits and all of that. And like, he says the, pro the problem with that is that we're, we're wiring us to think if we do something, then we get a reward out of it, rather than the simple joy of learning. Um, it would never work, probably, because we need to create um, good little factory workers, and that's what our entire educational system is actually geared towards doing. Um, can I get an amen from the teachers in the room? Some of y'all are doing, you're doing far better than uh, the bare minimum. Um, but this is what we often think. And, and it's like we miss the forest for the trees. We're so wired to think about performance and accolades and, and merits and behavior that we can't read the Bible. We can't read what it's actually saying. And I think this is what David is actually telling us in this psalm. When you take delight in the Lord, what he gives you are desires. Because we all know, like, what we worship shapes us. What we give our attention to changes us. It transforms us. This is what I mean when I say everybody's looking for God. We're all looking for this highest ideal. We're looking for something that to aspire to. We're looking for something that answers those kind of three core questions that are the deepest part of the human art. Who am I? Who do I belong to? And what am I here to do? We're all looking to answer those questions. And so whatever we give our attention to begins to shape our desires. And so it's not a question of 
who do you worship? Like, do you worship or do you not? It's a question of who. And I love, what I love about this is thinking about how sometimes our adoration of God, he redeems desires that we already have. So sometimes we have desires that are kind of, they're fundamentally, they're good desires or they're, they're at least relatively neutral. They're not bad things to want out of life but sometimes we're a little bit misaligned as to our agenda of why we want those things or why we don't want other things. And God begins to shape and form those expectations, and he literally redeems those desires. Perhaps your desire is to be married, to have kids. Uh, Perhaps your desire is for a certain level of comfort in your life, whatever it might be. It's not inherently bad, but the way in which you're going about trying to achieve that is determined by what it is that you give your attention to. But sometimes God gives us radically new desires, things that we never thought we wanted until we meet Jesus face to face. And it changes something deep within us. It changes what we think life is all about. I think for many of us, I think for many of you in here, it's it's that, especially that question of meaning, like what your life is about. Again, one one of the biggest false gods that we have in our society is the God of comfort, that the highest claim that we can make to life is to be comfortable. And we spend a tremendous amount of time just trying to avoid suffering. But we think the highest claim to life is to be happy. And we chase after happiness like it's a god. And we find ourselves constantly disappointed. But sometimes when we put God as the center of our attention, we have these radically new desires. We find that we're actually quite happy to suffer. We We begin to recognize that we can actually put up with a lot because our lives mean something and our suffering is not in vain. So at the beginning of this year, what gifts will you bring to King Jesus? What is your expectation when you come to him? Do you have a list of things that you need him to give you? Like God is your landlord and you've already signed the contract and he better come through in 30 days? Is that your expectation of God? Or do you come first and foremost to worship and adore him for who he is? Perhaps some of you, I know I see this in myself a lot, you're rather Herodian, that you're a lot like King Herod. When you hear that God is on the move, uh, you're just a little bit threatened um, because you're worried about the power that Jesus might take from you if he's on the throne and you're not or you're worried about the comfort that it might cost you if Jesus is on the throne and you no longer get to dictate the law of the land. Perhaps some of you, uh, you would see yourselves in the religious elite. You know the Bible inside out. You've got great doctrine. You've got great sword drills or whatever it might be. You're so content with keeping it all in here, it never occurs to you to actually move towards him because you confuse those two things. You think that that is what faith is about when some of that can actually be the biggest hindrance to encountering God. But perhaps some of you are also magi. You're foreigners. You're the people that probably shouldn't have been part of the story but were. And you're going to look for Jesus because you want encounter, because you want to worship him for who he is because you recognize what it is that he has done for all of us, and you're content with that. You think that's enough. To to gaze upon the Christ child is enough. That is 
the reward in and of itself? So do you give him your devotion as your king? Do you offer him gold as your king? Do you honor him? Are you in awe of him because he is God incarnate? And do you respond to his sacrifice by recognizing that his death means life for us all? So that's my challenge to all of us at the beginning of this year. We're all looking for God. But why? What are you looking for? And I would encourage you to take time this week to work through that between you and the spirit of Jesus, to kind of get yourself realigned, to take delight in the Lord and to believe that he will give you desires of your heart. So I'm gonna pray uh, and then I'm gonna invite Ellie up to let us know what's happening. So Heavenly Father, um, on the eve of this new year, I pray that you would do the work within us to root out any Herodian jealousy or envy we might be harboring, that you would root out of us any religious elitism where we find ourselves apathetic, burdened because we think we know too much, and that you would instill in us that magi heart, that desire to seek you, to adore you, to worship you for who you truly are, and to believe that you are good. So bless us, Lord, um, at the beginning of this new year, that this may be a year of deeper intimacy, that this might be a year of being ever more rooted in our true identity, and this might be a year of really discovering what our spirit-given purpose is. Pray all this in the strong and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.